and uh, rejecting the truth from your word. And Lord, help us. Help us to remain steadfast and to be a shining testimony, a compassionate yet bold and unwavering testimony of your truth. And may you use us in in a very uh, effective way to not only outwardly display the truth of your word, but that we will be able to be a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit being done in their lives as well. And the conviction that he brings, that people can see your transforming work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Revelation 12 tonight, Revelation 12. And um, we are uh, in the seventh trumpet at this point, which began has begun the, uh, the last three and a half years, what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, the last half of the Tribulation period. Up until this time, keep in mind that the Antichrist had come on the scene shortly after the rapture and sets himself up in the temple as the Messiah and the Israelites initially will believe that he's the Messiah. He's going to come uh, deceiving them, and he's going to have peace with Israel for three and a half years, and they're going to uh, rejoice in that. They're going to think that their Messiah has come. At the end of three and a half years, uh, and when the seventh trumpet takes place, and this is what we're studying and have been studying the last two Wednesday nights that we've been here, is uh, a change that takes place. Uh, in uh, Satan, uh, and we're going to study a little bit more about that tonight, that causes him to grow not just... He's always been angry at Israel. He's always been resentful of Israel. But his anger grows to a boiling point. And we'll see that here in chapter 12. Uh, as we get to um, the... Uh, down around verse number... Um, Let's go down to verse number 9, and we'll start there and get a kind of a running start into it. Uh, there are several uh, characters that we've studied here in the book, uh, in, the, in this particular chapter. Uh, we have the sun-clothed woman, that I believe there's pretty good argument that is referring to the nation of Israel. Um, then we have the, um, the, the man-child who is born to uh, the sun-clothed woman, and I believe is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the dragon, of course, in verse 9, we don't have to wonder. Uh, it says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So we know very clearly that certainly the dragon is Satan. And uh, Satan is standing as the, the woman is about to give birth to the man-child to devour the child as soon as he's born. And um, we find that... Uh, as we get down verse number, uh, let's go to verse number 6 for a minute. All right, let's go back to verse 5, I'm sorry. Go to verse number 5 first. The Bible says, And she brought forth a man-child, speaking of the woman here, who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And, of course, that's speaking of uh, Christ during his millennial reign. Uh, the Bible says he'll rule the nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God to his throne. So, again, we find a... a Reference here to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's caught up with speaking here at this time of the ascension of Christ after his resurrection from the dead. And then verse number 6, we find there's a time lapse between verse 5 and verse 6. Between the time that Christ ascended back to heaven and the time that 
uh, will come in the middle of the tribulation period. There's no discussion of what takes place during those times between verse number 5 and verse number 6. Because verse number 6 is referring to the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there, a thousand two hundred and three score days. And this is referring to Israel now uh, getting ready to come under absolute great persecution from the Antichrist and the beast and the dragon. And uh, they're, go- they're going to be scattered uh, into the wilderness. And notice what the Bible says here in uh, verse number 7. There was war in heaven. Uh, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels, uh, and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. So last Wednesday night we spent a good deal of time doing a study on angels and uh, the the difference uh, that the Bible speaks of. We have cherubims that seem to have a security slash um, uh, defensive or warrior type. Mentality, as you find them depicted in Scripture, you'll find the first mention of them in the Garden of Eden, and they have a flaming sword, and their purpose was to uh, keep Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden. Uh, there are other instances in Scripture that speak of cherubims, and they seem to have a defensive type of a, um, a role that they play. And then we have the seraphims. The seraphims are only mentioned by name or by uh, yeah by name in Isaiah. And these are the ones that have the six wings. They fly around the throne of God, and with two wings they cover their face, two wings they cover their feet, and two they fly. And they cry, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the reason I say that Isaiah is the only place that they are spoken of where they're named seraphims is they seem to be the same creatures that are mentioned in Revelation but referred to there as living creatures, not as seraphims. And they, they, there are similarities there uh, of their faces. There are similarities there of their wings and their purpose around the throne. And so it seems to me that those are one and the same, even though they're not called seraphims in the Revelation. Um, the role of the seraphim is that they are consumed with praising God. And they also have a cleansing work in God's people, uh, it seems to be. Um, in that when Isaiah was before the throne, he said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And he could not even speak. And the seraphims were the ones that went to the, uh, to the altar and took the coal from off the altar and went to uh, Isaiah and cleansed his tongue and purged it so he could speak. And so they seemed to have a role of doing that sort of a work as well. And uh, then we talked about archangels. And uh, I for many years, was under the impression that there were three archangels mentioned in Scripture, uh, namely uh, Lucifer, who I thought was an archangel at one time, Gabriel, who I also thought was an archangel at one time, and Michael. Uh, However, the Bible only refers to Michael by the term archangel. Uh, That does not mean that Gabriel and that Lucifer did not have some kind of authority or power. Obviously, when Lucifer left, he took a third of uh, heaven away, the stars of heaven, which we're referring to the other uh, angels. So apparently it seemed to me like all three of them had command over a third of the host of the angels. Michael is the only one in Scripture that is given the name archangel or told that he is an archangel by description. Uh, Suffice to say this, that all three of these particular angels have... Uh, some sort of greater power than just regular angels that are mentioned in Scripture. Uh, and we took a little bit of time to look at some of that last week um, in, in Scripture. 
And um, then um, I want us also, if you will, to um, we're going to take another look here at a couple of things real quick here. Um, Look with me in Jude 9, and I think we looked at this one. Hold your place in Revelation 12. We're going to use our Bibles a lot, so keep them handy. Uh, We're going to look at a lot of uh, passages here. In Jude verse number 9, the Bible makes reference here. It says, yet Michael the archangel. So this is one of those references where Michael is called an archangel. Where Michael, and in fact it uses a definite article, the, as if there's only one of them. So uh, Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil... Uh, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. And uh, so uh, he obviously disputed with Satan over the devil over the body of Moses. We also know from Daniel chapter number 9 and Daniel chapter number 10 that there was a spiritual warfare that was fought between Michael and the prince of, at that point was referred to as the prince of Persia, that had withstood the, the other angel, the messenger that God had sent 21 days earlier, to bring the interpretation of the dream to Daniel. And Michael had to come because the angel could not prevail against the prince of Persia. Obviously, the prince of Persia, the spiritual entity known as the prince of Persia, uh, had greater power than the messenger that was originally sent. And Michael had to come and help him and uh, wrestle with him against that. And the Bible tells us, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Uh, but against power, principalities against powers and rules of wickedness in high places. And so uh, we understand that there is a warfare that takes place spiritually. I hope every Christian understands this, that there is a battle that goes on. And it's, it's not something that is, is lightly done. Uh, today in warfare, there, there may be two countries at war. Uh, in fact, we're still at war with North Korea, but we've had a ceasefire for I don't know how many years now, a number of years it's not that kind of war. This is a warfare that, that is fought every single day. And it's a violent battle that takes place. It's, it's a continual contending for the faith. The battle that takes place in every person's life with regards to spiritual warfare in these places. There's also a reference to the prince of Tyre, uh, or Tyrus, if you will, in the book of Ezekiel that we looked at last week. And uh, the idea that this, again, was... Uh, in reference to a uh, spiritual power, I think personally because of the description that was given that it was Satan himself that was referred to as the Prince of Tyre. We're not going to go back and reiterate that. You can get the uh, recording or later on you can get the notes and you can go back and research that. But we did teach on that last Wednesday night. Suffice to say that to me it seems that the Prince of Persia at the time was obviously the kingdom of Persia and the spiritual, uh, the the uh, satanic or devilish uh, influence that was uh, influencing the leaders and the rulers of that particular place. To me, it seems like Satan has certain times in, uh, throughout history in certain locations where he kind of headquarters from, if you will. Satan is not omnipresent like God is. And it seemed like during the time of Persia, it was there in the kingdom of Persia. Uh, during the time of Tyrus, it seemed like it was there in the kingdom of Tyrus. Um, we even find in one of the letters to the letter to the church at Pergamos that at the time of the writing of the Revelation, John referred to the, the city of Pergamos as the seat of Satan, uh, or perhaps in that reference, uh, the, the place where Satan was headquartered out of. The wickedness was so great there, and so uh, this is this is a battle. This dragon uh, is is going to have a battle. And notice the Bible says this in verse number seven uh, of Revelation twelve. 
And there was war in heaven. So where is this battle taking place? There was war where? In heaven, right? Okay. Understand this. Who's, who's Michael fighting with? He's fighting with or against. He's fighting against the dragon. So Satan has, or uh, still at this time, he has access to heaven. Even though he's been cast out of heaven by way of authority, he has no rule in heaven. Uh, we also know from the book of Job, it seems that he has access to God and can come before him and talk with him. Uh, we find that this battle is taking place in heaven. This war in verse number 7 is taking place in heaven. So obviously, from the time that Satan was cast out until even present day, until this particular time in the book of Revelation, Satan still has access to heaven, access to God, um, but has no authority in heaven. He's not there as a, a ruling or a powerful angel in heaven or has no authority there. Uh, so, notice what it says, verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. Now, we know from a couple of places here uh, that um, Satan certainly uh, fell from heaven. Uh, there were stars that are uh, prophetically sp- spoken of where it says a third of the stars uh, came uh, came with him. And so, these were in reference to uh, some other angels that followed him. Um, and so this battle takes place, and one thing I want us to gain from this, and I mentioned it two or three times now, is that Satan's power does not equal the Lord Jesus Christ, where uh, Christ and Satan are at battle with each other. Uh, he is more closely aligned in power with, with Michael, uh, the archangel, and that's where the battle takes place. Satan is created. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going to, uh, I don't know if I've got the verse with me tonight or not, but in studying some of this, we do know at the end of Revelation, the Bible says that he's going to defeat Satan and his armies by the word of his mouth. Uh, but it also speaks in another place I was studying this week. It talks about the fact that uh, even with his finger, he controls Satan. Just, just his finger. You know, he can just point to things. He controls uh, these, these demonic forces and these, uh, these devilish imps of Satan that, that go around. Uh, God just, he just kind of controls them however he wants to control them. They cannot do anything that he does not allow them to do. And so if you're a Christian and you say, well, Satan made me do it. No, you allowed him to. Satan gave allowance for him to tempt you maybe. But uh, And then I've had a few Christians that have said, well, I think that Satan is possessing me. Well, uh, Satan can't possess a Christian. Uh, he, can, he can influence, he can, he can tempt, he can oppress uh, a Christian. But I don't believe uh, the Bible teaches at all anywhere that once the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and that we are secured uh, by that, that he is able to come and live inside of us at all. And so Satan does not possess Christians, but he certainly has influence. He certainly <clears throat> uses his wiles. He brings temptation our way. Notice in verse 8 it says, And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. So it's at this point in the history uh, that Satan is finally, once and for all, cast out of heaven to the fact that he does not, from this point forward, uh, have access to heaven. He's not able to be a part of it. Uh, he can't, uh, even though he has no authority there now, he can still go there and see God and talk to God. At verse number 8, when Michael fights with him and the great battle is fought there in heaven, Michael finally casts him out. Satan cannot prevail against him and casts out the angels, and they are found no more anymore in heaven, the Bible says in verse 8. And I want you to notice in verse 9 what it says. 
And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And so when this is, when this is done, at this point Satan has no more access to heaven. Notice what the response is. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. It's interesting because we found that uh, angels are ministering spirits. They are uh, to minister to the saints and so Michael, being one of those angels, and the other angels that are in heaven, uh, are there to minister to the saints. Whereas Satan and his devils, uh, they are there as the accusers of the saints. You see quite a distinction there. Understand that there is uh, no middle ground of, uh, of uh, agreement. There's no standard of compromise between Satan and the things of God. In fact, the Bible teaches us quite clearly over and over and over again that, that they are at odds one with the other, that there uh, is a, 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 a separation there, an opposition there uh, of absolute uh, uh, disdain. It's like trying to bring two, uh, two of the same poles of a magnet together. There's a repelling there that takes place. And you cannot draw close to one without repelling the other. And if we're struggling with living in the world, then we can rest assured it's because we're not drawing to the things of the Spirit. Because they are diametrically opposed one to the other. They're at war. They're at enmity. The Bible uses the word enmity, uh, one with the other. There's a, a separation that takes place here. And uh, so Satan is cast out. The people in heaven are excited about this. Uh, notice it says here, now has come salvation and strength. And uh, we find now that <clears throat> Excuse me. That um, uh, that God. That, that, I'm sorry. <laughs> My brain just went dead a minute. We find now that Satan uh, is no longer allowed to be the accuser before God of the brethren. He doesn't stand before God all day long trying to accuse us. And so the people rejoice in that and say, "Now is salvation. Now has come salvation and strength." And it's not speaking of our soul salvation as much as it's speaking of the victory that is gained over Satan in this area. Now is salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast now, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, have great wrath, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time." So, there's a couple things that are taking place here. Uh, Satan is finally ejected out of heaven, and he goes into uh, uh, absolute anger. And the Bible says of that in verse 12, it talks about that, um, that the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. And so his anger is kindled at this point. This is what um, is part of this great tribulation that takes place in the last three and a half years. Satan at this point breaks the covenant with Israel that he's made, the peace with Israel, and he's coming after them with a vengeance. Understand this and know this. Satan has always been uh, resentful of Israel, uh, angry at Israel, but because of the fact 
that Israel was the one responsible for bringing the Christ into the world that was to be the redemption of man. Satan, who thought he had won the victory over man in the Garden of Eden, is now defeated. His anger is kindled. He now realizes that he cannot win the victory over those that will choose Christ. And so they've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And um, I want to, uh, I lost my train of thought again. Give me a second here to get where I'm, where I'm going with this. I had a thought and I, was, I lost where I was going with it. Um, so anyway, well, anyway, Satan's very angry at this point. That's where I'm at. I feel like Joe Biden all of a sudden. Say, sorry about that. Scratch that from Facebook. We don't want to get banned. Satan's very angry at this point. All right. Uh, now, in verse number 11, the Bible says, And they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. So these are speaking of um, people that are gaining this victory. By having Satan cast out of heaven, not only victory in the sense that we're saved, but because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been given victory not just um, uh, over Satan, but we've been given victory from Satan. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Not only have we been given victory in the sense that our salvation has been won at Calvary, but we also, because of the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and His transforming work in our hearts, we have victory from sin. And so not only do we have uh, uh, victory over Satan, but we have victory from Satan in these things. Uh, understand this, that every time we sin, it's by choice. Uh, we don't have to do it. And God has made it absolutely abundantly possible for a person to overcome temptation. He's talked about that, that with the temptation, he makes a way of escape. And yet, because we're human, because we have a sinful nature, we still sin. I don't believe in sinless perfection or that we will attain that until we get to heaven one day. But it ought to be what we strive for. It ought to be what we long for. Uh, Notice what it says here, how they've overcome Satan. And I think it's very important for us because I've heard Christians use this phrase or this expression before. Maybe you've heard it. Um, just plead the blood, brother. Just plead the blood. Um, the blood does give us power. It gives us power to do the other two things that are mentioned here. Let's look and see what it says here in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's the first step. We get saved. We trust Christ as our Savior. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. And that empowers us or gives us the ability, notice this, it also they also overcome him by the word of their testimony. Now think about this for a moment. Not only are they testifying of the truth of the gospel, but by their lifestyle, the way they live, and the working of the Holy Spirit in them, they are also a living testimony of the transforming work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. I'm going to say something that at the outset it's going to sound like it's wrong, but think about it for a moment and understand this. Our testimony is not ours. The testimony we are trying to portray is not ours. We're not trying to get men to look at us and say, boy, isn't he good? Isn't he doing right? The testimony that we have that we are to be portraying is the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. When men see our good works, they ought to see him working in us. We don't do it for the sake of somebody patting us on the back saying, boy, you've really, you used to be a bad person, now you're a really good person. That's not, we've missed the whole boat if that's what we're looking for in our testimony. 
What we need to understand is, when God did His transforming work in us, His testimony becomes important. And we are to reflect Him in all we do. We have a choice. And in the Christian life, I fear that far too often Christians focus on their testimony instead of His testimony through them. Understand what our testimony is. When we live a life, we talk about having a testimony, what we're talking about is this, that Christ has done a transforming supernatural work on the inside of me that has become obvious on the outside. And I want the people to see that. The testimony is not something that I try to generate outwardly. It is the fruit of my heart. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit residing in me and my yieldedness to Him day in and day out in a large part determines how much of that testimony the world sees. Most of the time, sad to say, in my life and in the lives of many other Christians, I fear that they see our testimony which is the works of the flesh, things we attempt to do to appear good outwardly, rather than what God is truly, genuinely doing in the heart of hearts in the transforming work that He does through His Holy Spirit. The testimony that is spoken of here, they overcome the, the, the dragon by the blood of the Lamb, which gives them the power to also have this word of their testimony the fact that they have boldness to speak, but not just boldness to speak, but character to live it. And this testimony is not theirs, but it's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They were so consecrated and so yielded to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that even to the point of death, They were not willing to give it up. Now think about this for a moment. Just a couple of chapters ago when we were studying, this would have been three weeks ago, we found that there was a group of people just before the seventh seal, or the seventh trumpet, excuse me, that 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 were not willing to quit their sinning, were they? They they were not going to give up their occultic practices, they were not going to give up their uh their rebellion against God, and they said we would rather die than turn from our sin. Here we find that these that overcome Satan are those that are bought by the blood of the Lamb. They, the word of their testimony is such. They've, they've uh, had the transforming work and they nurture that transforming work in them so much that their testimony is very bold. It keeps them from sin. And uh, by the way, our, our walk with God, our yieldedness to the leading of the Holy Spirit and obedience to the words that He's given us in His Word uh, often will determine what our testimony is. And so by that, and then also he says here in the third part of the third thing of it, that they love not their lives even unto death. These are those who uh, also do not hold their life dear. They would rather die than to bring a reproach to the Lord Jesus Christ than to recant their faith in Him. So there's a contrast that's seen here in Revelation. We have a group of folks who are so rebellious and angry at God said, we'd rather die than obey. We'd rather die than forsake our sin. And then you have these that have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, who God has done a transforming work in. They said, we would rather die than turn from the Lord Jesus Christ and recant of our faith. If you've never had the, the privilege 
of reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. I, I don't know that I would recommend it for young readers. It, it can be very uh, emotionally distru- uh, cause distress. But I'll tell you, I've read it now several times in my lifetime. I think for probably at least four or five times. Most of it I have wept through. Because I have found that there was a consecration and a dedication. There was a, there was a transforming work that had such a hold on the inner man of these people that they could say like the Apostle Paul did, for me to live as Christ... And to die is gain. I'm ready to be offered. He told, uh, I think it was the church in uh, in Corinth, or or uh, uh, might have been the church at Philippi. I don't remember which one he was talking to uh, at the time. But he said, "I'm ready to be offered." He said, "You know, I, they they were trying to keep him from going to Rome. He knew, uh, and he said, "I'm ready to be offered." He said, "If it's if, if it's by death, so be it." We don't find that kind of commitment much anymore. Not for the testimony of Christ. We're too quick to bow the knee to the pressures of this world. We see it all through our society. We see churches, pastors, willing to bow the knee and cave to the world than to say, I hold not my life dear. I would rather die. I would rather die is the heartbeat of these people than to turn from my Savior. That's the kind of person that has overcome Satan. Yes, we get the victory through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that blood of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the strength to have a testimony for Him. And to get to the place where in our lives, we count not our lives dear. If you think about this, there are people, I I was talking with... Talk with someone just this week. Someone, someone I'm a very dear friend with. That used to used to hold to everything the Bible said with Amen in the services. They changed. They now are following a social gospel. They're talking about how that. Because the Bible talks about love, that that means that everything that this society does, God's just lovey-dovey and it's okay because God's lovey-dovey and everything's okay with it. Folks, that's not what my Bible says. And there's been some slipping. There's been some moving. There's been some changing. These folks that have overcome Satan, overcame them by the blood of the Lamb, they overcame them by the word of their testimony, I want you to understand this. They also had a mindset that they held not their lives dear for the cause of Christ. What is it that would cause you and I to to cave? What is it that would cause you or I to compromise on the truth of God's Word and turn from it? It doesn't mean we have to be mean about it. I think we've far too long over the years thought that we weren't being steadfast enough if we weren't mean about it while we did it. Christ certainly did not compromise in His ministry on earth. There's no doubt He was compassionate. We can take an example from Him. 
not compromise, but certainly be compassionate. There, there are some things in our life, in our, our society today, things that we're dealing with, that we need to make sure we do not move on. And it will cost us in the day that we live. In fact, the day is coming where it may cost us a great deal. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 13, speaks of the fact that we have not yet resisted unto blood, or the folks that he was writing to at the time, what he was saying by that is you've not had to pay the price with your own blood for what you hold to. We've been very fortunate here in the United States of America to have religious liberty. But folks, we have for far too long either compromised ourselves or been silent while compromise was going on around us. And by our silence, we have uh, given our assent. Whether we meant to or inclined to or not, we did. We gave our agreement to what was taking place. And we need, a, we need a revival, we really do, in our country of God's men and God's women. It needs to, ladies, forgive me, I'm not male chauvinist, I'm just telling you what the Bible, uh, the Bible's priority is men need to take the stand. And women, we need to stand behind them when they do. Uh, our country needs to get back to this. The book of Revelation is, is a wonderful book. It certainly teaches us of end-time events. But there are so many practical things to be found in this book. And the Bible talks very clearly in the onset of this, that blessed are they that hear and read the words of this book and take heed, take heed to the things that are written therein. And folks, I want to encourage us in this. Uh, we need to get back to this idea of having a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I think that's why the Bible tells us, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because when we get saved, our desire ought to be to have to take the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and hold it forth to a world by our words and our life. If we claim to be a child of God, then why don't we hold forth his testimony more in our lives? Why don't we live more like him? Why don't we talk more like him? Why don't we uh, why don't we act more like him? And show forth the transforming work that God has, God has done in our lives. And the fear I have in even bringing the point up is this, that we'll, we'll look at that and we'll say, boy, that's right, you know, it is the Lord's testimony and I should outwardly be like Him. And then we'll go home and we will attempt in our own flesh and in our own power to imitate Him outwardly. And I'm not saying that we should not put forth effort. The Bible talks about Paul bringing his body into captivity. There's some effort. There's, there's some decision-making. There's some firmness of, of character that needs to be had in our hearts and our minds. But folks, we cannot artificially, outwardly, and only externally portray this. It needs to be a transforming work on the inside. The Holy Spirit of God needs to lead us daily there needs to be a, a yieldedness to Him to know how we're to live our lives with the idea that everything I do is a reflection on Him. If I claim to be His child, what I do reflects on Him. 
I, I was I was talking to this person this week, and it has broken my heart. It really has. I have a hard time even speaking of it because of the change that I have seen. And the the problem is they've they've seen, and this is what the problem has been. They have seen with their own eyes too many people that named the name of Christ that did not hold the truths of this book dear, that were artificially, outwardly trying to be something. But the transforming work had not been done. There was no zeal, there was no passion to live for the Lord. It was all external. It was all, it was all done. It, I, I don't know, and, and forgive me for saying this, I'm going to say something and then I'll apologize one time because I don't have time to apologize for all the things I say tonight. I, I want to, I, I'm just going to tell you this, and I, it bothers me when I watch a church that claims to be blood-bought, that claims to have their sins forgiven, that claims to have the truth of God's Word and the gospel in their hands to present to the lost world. A church that claims to have standards and to live outwardly the way that God would want them to live. And they get in their church services and they look like they just went to a funeral. Where's the zeal in serving God? When I live a testimony for the Lord, it ought to be something that, that burns in my heart to be. It needs to get out. Not something I do outwardly to try to impress somebody or make them think I am something. There needs to be an internal zeal. There needs to be a fire that burns in there that causes me to live outwardly the way that I should. And this person, I promise you, when I, when I heard their reasoning and their, their comments that they made and the, the sarcasm with which they said some things, it was apparent that they had been around other folks that named the name of Christ that, that were no doubt artificial, that were no doubt no better than the Pharisees who had cleansed the outside of the cup. And they saw right through them. Folks, we are in need of God's people to walk with God, to love this book, to not just be blood-bought, but to be uh, having a, a testimony that we understand is His, that I need to reflect, that I need Him to do such a work in me that He, that he produces fruit in my life. And out, that comes out on the outside. And then I need to be willing to follow that with all of my heart regardless of the cost. And hold not my life dear. Some of us aren't even willing to withstand the ridicule and the sarcasm and the, the spiteful words that are said about us. Much less give our lives for Him. I hope if the time ever comes, I hope that I would be faithful to death. The truth is, none of us know till the time came how we would respond to it. But I have thought this for a long time, that if I am not willing to live for Christ now, I don't think I would ever be willing to die for Him then. There needs, there needs to be a stirring of the Holy Spirit of God doing a work in us. I'm not talking about just coming up with a list of approved Baptist standards and saying we need to do this and we need to do this and we need to do this. I think it's fine to teach those things and to know where those are. 
But that better not be our reason for doing them. There better be a transforming work. There better be a fire that burns in us that says, I want to be pleasing to God. And when I know what those standards are, and I know that they please Him, I want to do them not because I want somebody to think of me a certain way, but because I love Him. And I want to please Him. And I don't want to do anything to bring a reproach to Him. Because it's His testimony, it's not mine. And when men see me, do they see Christ? When men see you, do they see Christ? The way you dress, the way you speak, the way you act, the places you go, do they see Christ in that? There needs to be a testimony. And there needs to be a counting of the life that we have saying I'm willing to even give my life if necessary before I will change or bow to the pressures of this world. I will be steadfast as much as within me is and with every ounce of strength that I have and with all the diligence of character that I can muster, I will follow hard after this Word and after Christ. Why? Because it burns within me. There's something there that just sets me afire. Folks, this is the kind of testimony that needs to be in our hearts. And maybe, maybe if we could have this happen again. Maybe if people could see this kind of thing in us. Maybe it would keep someone from this attitude that I saw this week. Someone who used to think highly of the things of the Lord. That have turned their back. And sarcastically made fun and ridiculed the truths the standards, the precepts of this book. I I don't mean to get off on a soapbox tonight, but folks, these things are, are part of what is going to happen in the end times. And I believe there are some very important lessons we can learn along the way for today. And I want to encourage us in this. If we've lost that fire, if we're just going through the motions of being a Christian then maybe we need to get down by our beds or in our prayer closets tonight. If we don't have one, maybe make a prayer closet or a place where you can go and say, Lord, I just need to get alone with You for a while. Lord, I've lost this. I've lost the zeal. I've lost the desire. I don't feel like the Holy Spirit is stirring me anymore. I don't feel like He's working in me anymore. And I feel like all I'm doing is going through the motions. I promise you this, if you'll come to Him and you'll ask Him for that, He's going to certainly do something to stir us up. Folks, we're living in some times, I'll be real frank with you, I'm not at all pleased with. And to be real frank with you, when it comes to me viewing my children and possible grandchildren down the road, I even become fearful seeing the direction it's going. Not for me, but for them. And folks, it's not too late, but we've got to change. We cannot continue to do what we've been doing and expect there to be a different outcome. There's got to be a change. And I hope this will, I hope this will stir us to the place where we'll stop and we'll think for a little bit. We'll get along with God and pray, Lord, help me. Help me to burn inside with the right kind of truth that Your Word will do its work. Your Holy Spirit will constantly be 
active in my heart and in my life. And I hope that will help us tonight. Let's stand together. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You'll use it. Lord, we're living in some very trying times. We're living in some times that certainly wonderful lessons can be learned from this passage. I pray that You would help us tonight. And Lord, while uh, while we oftentimes 